I think it was, uh, one minister said, he said one of the worst things you can say to a person that you haven't seen in years, maybe 10 years or 15 years, one of the worst things you can say is you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> and what he was saying is he was not saying that, you know, our ego, of course we like that, you know, if you see a person you hadn't seen in 10 years and to say you haven't changed a bit, meaning your appearance, of course that, that, that pleases the ego, but he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about the change of a man's character, that the worst thing you can say is to a person, you haven't changed a bit. So what I want to deal with today is, since this is the last day of Unleavened Bread, is to ask the question, when do we change? And I think it will tie into the meaning behind this feast. I think this feast actually answers that question. When do we change? When I first came into the church, and I think I've shared this story with you before, I met a man uh, before I was baptized who said he had been a smoker all of his life and that when he was baptized, the day he was baptized, he actually threw the cigarettes away and he went down under the waters of baptism and come up and he said, he, this was his exact words, he said, God took away the desire to smoke. And I was very encouraged by that and I don't doubt for a second that God in some cases can do you know, that he, wouldn't, that he could do just that. I mean, he can take away an addiction. He can take away a sin just like that. I don't think it's the normal way he works, but I, I don't doubt for a second that he could not do that. But because I heard the story uh, shortly, I think, maybe before my baptism or shortly after, you know, I, it was almost it created an expectation within me. I was sort of expecting something similar in my own personal life that God would just take it away. Well, it didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> my own personal struggles and sins and addictions or whatever they were, you know, God did not just take that away. And there was an experience, there was a learning process and that we, we go through. So, sort of my expectations a little bit were confused and I got a little bit mess, messed up there in what I thought God would do for me. Now, I think the concept that most people have about salvation is that it's, it's sort of just mere acceptance of inviting Christ into your life. And I sort of think that people sort of in their mind think, well, any change, you know, I guess will basically occur at the resurrection. Now, there is a big change that's going to take place at the resurrection. Your body is going to be changed from what it is now, flesh and blood. And, of course, the Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But your body is going to be changed. You're going to be given a new body. Uh, from flesh to spirit. And we can only speculate what that will be like. Pulsating energy, you know, just, it's going to be wonderful, I think. So that is a change that's going to take place. But that's not the change I'm talking about today. The change I'm talking about is when does the character of a man change? You know, you think about it, people are waiting, probably, for you to change. <laughs> Maybe you're your husband, your wife, your co-workers, you know, uh, maybe a father waiting on his son to change. You know, sometimes as parents we go through a lot in that area. There's a lot of expectations that we have. You know, I, I hope that he change. I pray for change. I want this to happen. And so parents can go through a lot in that area. We have our expectations about others. And, you know, change 
There's a, a psalm that says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. That's uh, Psalms 127 and verse 1, if you want to reference Psalms 127 and verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that, that build it, that God has to be involved. And I, I do believe that God has a hand in all positive change, whether you're called or not. I think any positive change that is pleasing toward God, you know, I want to quit smoking, I want to quit doing this, whatever it is, that God can have a hand, God will help that person. Even though God may not be calling that person at all, that God will help that person uh, be free and to make changes to better ourselves, you know, that God's hand will help us in those areas. But I'm talking more about to people in God's church who have the Spirit of God. When do we change? When do we develop the kind of character God wants us to have? When does this process take place? Now, it may come as a surprise that there are some things that God cannot do. Or maybe I should say refuses to do. I think that's more correct. He refuses to do this thing I'm, I'm about to tell you. But God cannot instantaneously, or he refuses to instantaneously create godly character in a man. It is a process. That's the way you get it, is through a process. That involves a calling, involves conversion, it involves a lot of things. Of course, Greg was talking about how we put Christ in, put, put sin out. It, involved, it is a process. Now, God did have the option. He could have programmed us to always do the right thing. We would be like a robot. And we would always do the right thing. You know, I think it was Ron Dart said, there are beings out there that never sin. They're called cows. And, you know, but they, they go on instinct. God has created us a free moral agent with the ability to choose right from wrong. And because of that, to get what God is after, it is a process. How do we develop the, godly, the character of God? Now, what is the character of God? Well, to me it is, that when faced with right and wrong, God always chooses to do the right thing. That to me is the characteristic of God. That's what it would mean to be like God. When faced with two decisions, he always chooses the right thing. How do we develop that same characteristic that God has? Can you imagine the confidence in knowing that whatever I come up against, I would choose the right thing. You know I mean that that would be pretty cool if, if you if you knew that. Okay, whatever I'm coming up against, I'm going to choose to do. There's going to be two options here: the right thing, the wrong thing. But I will choose the right thing. That would that would give you a lot of confidence uh, in doing that. Now, how, how do we get there? Well, I like a statement. This is one way. I think it was Andrew Womack made this statement. And when he said it, it just stopped me in, in my track. He said, you cannot be tempted by a thought you don't think. I love that. <laughs> because, you know, that's not just truth. That's absolute truth right there. You cannot be tempted by a thought you don't think. So we're talking about developing the character of God here. And sometimes we look at it as, well, this, a lot of people will say, well, this is impossible. You really can't, you know, can you really please God in the flesh? Can you really do the right thing in the flesh? Is it even possible? Well, I want to turn to a verse here that I think 
can surprise us in Luke 1 and verse 5. It talks about a couple of people here. A man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Luke 1 and verse 5. It says, <clears throat> that's Luke 1 and verse 5. There was in the day of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was the daughter of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So we're dealing with two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Man, you know, that's, that speaks volumes to, to these two people here. Notice it again. Notice what it says. They were walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now, now I think there needs to be a balance here because, you know, sometimes what's worse than, I mean, this is a good thing to be able to do, but self-righteousness can be as evil of a sin or even more so than, because self-righteousness, you can't see the sin. You don't know you have it. And so, but I think it just illustrates that a goal that, you know, that, that sort of tells us opposite of what a lot of people would think. Know that you know, a lot of people would say, well, no, it's impossible. How do we develop the character of God? In order to answer this question, we must go back in time. And I want to consider a being called Lucifer. In Ezekiel 28 and verse 15, it says this. Ezekiel 28 and verse 15. It says there, it says, Speaking of the being Lucifer who became Satan, it says, You were perfect in your ways. That's Ezekiel 28 and verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. So here is a being that God created, the angelic realm. God created them. And you know the story. A great rebellion took place. Now, why did that rebellion take place? You know, they were created free, a free moral agency with the ability to choose right from wrong. And this one rebel took a third of the angels with him, and they rebelled. They chose poorly, okay? They chose poorly, and they said, we're going to rebel against God. Now, how are these beings created? Well, I believe they're spirit beings, that they were immortal. Um, now I know we, we in other words, these guys last forever, but, but there's a, we sometimes wonder, okay, will Satan be destroyed? And, but for right now, they are immortal, at least, to say the least. You know, they're, they're, they're existing, okay. And uh, what God does with them later is, a, is another question. But anyway, now sometimes people ask, why didn't God just give us eternal life from the get-go. You know, if all salvation is about is eternal life, and that, that is sort of the mindset I think a lot of people have. If you were to ask a definition of a hundred religious people, what is salvation? They would probably say, well, it's about living forever. Well, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. What is real salvation? You know, the answer is salvation is not just about achieving eternal life. Eternal life is a byproduct of real salvation. What you get out of real salvation, the byproduct, is you're going to live forever. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing. But that's not God's agenda, just granting us eternal life. 
<clears throat> in other words, true salvation, true salvation, leads to that desirable thing that we all want. And what is that? To live forever. <laughs> to live forever. Now I'm convinced that most people don't really understand what real salvation is. Let's understand what real salvation is. It is total transformation. You know, in other words, you start out like this. What you end up is something totally different than what you started out at. It is total transformation of the man, of the woman. Now, why is total transformation so important? Okay, we're dealing with the question, when do we change? And I'm talking to those who have the Spirit of God. Let's, let's consider something. Why is total transformation so important? Suppose God granted someone like an Adolf Hitler eternal life. What would that be like? Now, here was this madman, you know, bent on creating a superior race of people. And the way that he was going to do it was he was going to destroy anyone he thought was inferior. It's not as though he gave them a chance to get better. He was just going to wipe out the inferior ones. And, of course, it's always whoever you hate. You know, this, this kind of nonsense goes on today. But whoever you hate is the inferior ones. But suppose God granted, you know, I think of a Ted Bundy, a serial killer, you know, eternal life. Well, you know, the, the reason they can't do that is you have the answer. They have to change first is the answer. These people have to change first. And that's the correct answer. Now, for us, today is the day of salvation. If God has called you, today is your day of salvation. Now, if God has not called a person, today is not your day of salvation. But if God has called you, today is your day of salvation. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. That's a powerful statement. The time for us to change is today. And I think that is one of the biggest meaning that we get from the days of unleavened bread. It is today is when, when we change. Now, the problem is, I think, often we excuse ourselves too easily. We may say, well, I don't see anything wrong with maybe, you know, sometimes I lie when it's convenient. Or, <laughs> you know, sometimes I tell a, a, little, a little this, a little that, and maybe, maybe I, I did this over here and I should not. You know, we sort of excuse ourselves when it comes to our own personal struggles often you know maybe I got this little anger issue it's not that big of a deal but often we excuse ourselves thinking you know that it's just not that big of a, of a problem however from God's perspective these character flaws cannot be given eternal life you understand I mean because that would not create what makes a godly nation. Well, godly people make a godly nation with no character flaws. And what will the kingdom of God be like? Well, it, you know, it will be a kingdom where there are no character flaws. So the things sometimes we excuse ourselves in or at, the things that we struggle with, we really need to consider how does God look at this? Does God look at this, this little area that I, I sort of dismiss? Does he look at it the same way I look at it? Chances are the answer is no. No, he doesn't. He doesn't look at it the same way. Now, again, why is total transformation so important? 
Now, I'm a little bit reluctant to say this, but the concept that is, you know, that God could 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 learn things from experience. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, God knows it all. He knows I'm going to turn left, turn right. He knows who I'm going to marry. He knows." And I don't, I do not agree with that concept at all, that God has, has it all planned out your whole entire life. But a lot of people think, okay, God knows all. And yet in Hebrews 5 and verse 8, you don't have to turn there, but speaking of Jesus, it says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Christ in the flesh learned, get that, obedience by the things that he suffered. So what I'm saying is this, there was a time when these beings were created, angels, spirit beings, without the character test first. Without the character test first. And I take it that God would never again repeat that experience. Uh, because a third rebelled, they were free moral agents. They could choose to do the wrong thing, and they did. They did. So from that point, the character test had to come first. And this is where you and I fit in. We're, we're going through that right now. <laughs> the character. What, what will this person stand for? What will this person choose? We are created mortal subject to death, and if we fail the character test, we can simply be put out of our misery. So again, how do we get to this point where we are like God in that we can look at something that is right and something that is wrong and always choose to do the right thing? You know, you are not truly free unless you are free to choose to do the wrong thing or the right thing. That, you know, there has to be the two opposites. If, all, if the only choice you had was to do the right thing, that wouldn't be freedom. If the only choice you had was to do the wrong thing, that wouldn't be freedom. Now again, I have to admit, I wish it was easier than this. I wish I was a cow. <laughs> you know, no, I'm just kidding. But you know, sometimes we, we, we think, okay, man, I, I, why does it have to be so hard? Now, again, the answer is that when God calls us, we entered into what is referred to as the salvation, the salvation room process. That God, that is overseen by the Father and the Son, and maybe the 24 elders, I don't know. And they look at you in this room, and it is a process that, that you're going through. As you're molded and shaped, and, and they probably have... No telling what kind of discussions they have about us and where we're going and the direction that we're going. And we need to fine tune this person here and tweak this. And, you know, you can only imagine what that conversation would be like. But in, in, I think with the unleavened bread, you know, we have seven days of unleavened bread. Putting Christ in, putting sin out. And then you have, I think, from the wave sheep, you, there's 50 days to Pentecost. And in a way, this is just sort of a view here, that 50 days might represent one's lifespan. And then you come to Pentecost, where, you know, the Bible seems to imply every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, 
afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. That you have this first fruit harvest. And in other words, by that time, by that time, this period of time, unleavened bread, seven days, Christ in, you know, putting Christ in, putting sin out, and then the 50 days that lead up to the harvest, a complete work of transformation has been accomplished in you. And I think these days reveal what the transformation process is all about and why it is so important to God. It's about change. I bring this up because I, I'm constantly hit with, in mainstream, the concept of, you know, deathbed repentance, the sinner's prayer, come pray for me and save my soul, whatever it may be. And I sometimes wonder, okay, and of course, I, I guess I don't expect people to understand who are outside of the church, but okay, do they really understand what God is after? The change that God is, is desiring from us all. Now, I think the ones we need to be concerned about because of such uh, the seriousness of this issue is the man or woman in the mirror. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. That's Hebrews 10 and verse 31. Think about it. Who is God going to harvest? Well, he's going to harvest the first fruits. Is he going to harvest losers? <laughs> is he going to harvest duds? <laughs> is he going to harvest practicing sinners? No. no. Is he going to harvest those who have failed to overcome? No. In fact, if you would turn to this verse, Revelation 2 and verse 11. I was looking at this and I thought, man, this is sort of critical here, what this says. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. You ever ask the question, what happens if you don't overcome? Uh, then you can be hurt by the second death. So, I mean, I, for some reason it just dawned on me when I, when I asked that question. What if I don't overcome? You know, there's, there's two gr groups of people who can be hurt by the second death. One is those who reject the opportunity for salvation. And the other group is those who have failed to be overcomers. And, all right, think about the, the failure to bear fruit. Remember Jesus' example? He came to, it was a fig tree and he came to looking for figs on it and it was no figs on it and he cursed it and it wilted to the ground later the next day or whenever. And then, you know, what's the lesson of that? You must bear fruit. God expects us to bear fruit. Now, okay, that's, that's sort of, I want to leave you with something positive here. Because, <laughs> you know, it is serious what God has called us to. Very serious. He expects us to change. Romans 8 and verse 31. Let's read this passage. It's uh, Romans 8 and verse 31 through 39. It's encouraging. So I don't want to leave you with such a negative concept here, but Romans 8 and verse 31. <clears throat> what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not 
with him also freely give us all things. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, pearl, sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that's, that's powerful. That's encouraging to hear those words. So let's conclude with this. What excuse are we using not to be a winner? We can all have our excuses. You know, well, you don't understand what I'm struggling with. What excuse are we using? Because that word in Revelation, he that overcometh, that word basically means to the winners. I will grant, you know, will not be hurt by the second death. You know, will we'll sit with me in my throne. Will eat of the tree of life. Um, the winners. So, again, the question. When do we change? The answer is today. Today.